Dutton falls off millennial cliff. Acma proves case for change. MAGA madness consumes congressional Republicans. And the good news is garbage-powered cars. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host in the year 2023, Ben Davison, and joining me here at home with her baby sheep ears on <laughs> is the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and my co-host for the Adelaide Fringe Festival run of four Week on Wednesday shows at the end of February, start of March, the great, the glorious, the ever effervescent Van Badham. How are you, Van? Oh, uh, well, you I can't believe you told everybody about my baby sheep ears. So I have this headband that has baby sheep ears on it that I wear when I'm writing to keep my hair out of my face. And yes, I do look incredibly cute, but you know, you now cute. everyone knows. You look cute. It's good. It's it's pretty funny. I am the baby sheep. You are the baby sheep. It's also a good signal to Ben, which is I am writing. <laughs> you you must leave me alone. The sheep ears are on. That's right. And of course, this is our first episode back for 2023. Van is in the middle of writing three different pieces of work. Four. Four different pieces. Five. Of work. Five different pieces of work. Sorry, five different pieces. I feel like I'm the count on Sesame Street. Um, um, different pieces of work <laughs> but of course taking a break to do our very first episode of the year because we've had to come back you know a bit earlier than maybe we thought we would it's the first week of january 2023 because already so much is happening yeah stuff's happening everywhere it's really going a bit a uh, bit bonkers but then i want to start at home and then we'll look at sort of the world, if you like, or certainly the uh, English-speaking Anglophile world, because here at home, we've seen some really, I think, positive news over the break, and that is that the coalition vote is collapsing. Peter Dutton is careening towards a millennial cliff, uh, and the party of Menzies appears to be no more, and people don't like it. Oh, look, I disagree. I think the party of Menzies is alive and well in the teals. I think that's the <laughs> that's the Menzian Liberal Party. I don't think there's any debate around that. In terms of representing communities and electoral sentiment with candidates who are economically conservative, and this is, I mean, yeah. proof in fact, just look at the way that Zali Stegel, who's like the alpha teal um, or the proto-teal votes, and, but socially progressive that's who they are. Yeah. You know, these are not people who want to get all up in your personal life. They're supporters of marriage equality. They believe in the science of climate change. You know, they don't believe in victimising trans children. Yeah. And yet at the same time. Most of them have come out uh, in favour of the voice already, I believe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are these are what we would consider to be traditional small illiberal values and they're not. You know, they're not a, a, a block of votes in support of the kind of economic progressivism that you and I support. I don't think they'll be promising peace, land and bread anytime soon. <laughs> but certainly the that that is the traditional Menzian identity. And it's vanished from the Liberal Party and taken a lot of votes with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the polling that's come out just before Christmas, people may not have seen it uh, or may have gotten lost in all of the uh, Christmas and New Year festivities. I mean, the primary vote for the for the Liberals uh, has dropped uh, with people under the age of 34 by six points. Uh, it's dropped by uh, a solid five points for people between 35 and 55. I mean, this is... These are core constituencies and really increasingly going to be the majority of voters uh, as the as the silent generation and the baby boomer generation comes to its natural end. Yeah, so my mother, who died in November, she was silent generation because she was born in 41. She wasn't a baby boomer. Yeah. And they are 
passing out of the world. The boomers are leaving us as well. Generation X, which is my generation, is actually one of the smaller generations. Yeah. Funnily enough, all that talk of nuclear war really had a bit of an impact on the birth rate. So there aren't as many of us. Um, and I mean, not to mention in my personal experience, not a lot of us made it as far as the end of high school, which is very sad, but the dog is trying to decide if he's going to sit up or sit down. Everybody say hello to Germanicus Hound, little one. Welcome to 2023, Germ. Welcome to 2023, Germ. And the, and this is the thing that the millennial generation, your generation, your Gen Y, aren't you? I don't know. I think, I don't know. I don't know. I'm an 83 baby. Now, if you know what generation I'm in, send us a note, let me know. I think you're I've, Gen Y. I've heard of Gen Y. I've been told millennial. I think I'm one of those cusp people. I think there's Y, then millennials, then Z. I'm not uh, sure. But the the point is that there are a lot more of your generation than there are of mine. Hmm. And the democratic, the, the demographic implications of this change are political. I mean, one of the reasons why the 1960s happened uh, was, and, you know, all of those uprisings across the West Mm. and the youth movements was because there were more young people than there'd ever been because of the baby boom. And, yes, a lot of those people who, and I have met them personally, who are driving around in combi vans humming (laughs) Bob Dylan and singing Kumbaya, inherited a bit of property from mum and dad and turned into liberal voters, which was a tragedy at the time. This is is one of the key findings that researchers now showing us though, Van, is that not just in Australia, but even in like the UK and the US, that millennials uh, and Gen Y are not becoming as conservative as they age as those older generations, the Gen Xs and the Boomers did, uh, and that that's having a huge impact, particularly when you look at the numbers here in Australia, uh, that the people are not becoming more conservative. In fact, millennials are becoming more progressive as they age. Yeah, and this is new in terms of political demographics that this, you know, tried and true formula of appealing to old people, which has been very significant in the West, in looking specifically at Britain, where a, a lot of discussion about Brexit and who voted for Brexit, well, older Britons voted for Brexit and the Conservative Party has been held in place despite the absolute disaster of their economic management yeah. or economic mismanagement, which has, of course, plunged Britain into abject poverty, has been based on retirement the votes of older Britons. And of course, if those votes are dying off, where are you going as, as a movement, as a party of government? You know, it is, and there are implications for what kind of reaction and response conservative parties are going to have to the demographic reality they now face. Well, this is this is one of the interesting things. Uh, there was an article today in The Guardian, uh, Matt Grundoff, I think, wrote it, uh, talking about when you think about the material reality and the existential um, environment that millennials and Gen Y find themselves in, it, it it's no wonder they're more progressive because, you know, one in four people who are unemployed have a university degree now. You know, this this all the promises that were made around uh, every generation being better off than the one before it hasn't necessarily eventuated because of this pandering to older generations, this idea that you win votes by by pandering to older people, this consolidation of wealth that's occurred in the boomer generation in particular, uh, the insecure work environment that so many millennials find themselves in. I mean, we're talking about people, and we've talked about this a lot across the 116 episodes of the week on Wednesday, where you've got people who've got PhDs, you've got master's degrees, you've got people with lots of in-work experience uh, who find themselves in insecure work, not through anything me. not through anything they've done That's me. themselves, but through systemic pressures. So through labour hire, through use of casualisation, through the use of short-term contracts. Outsourcing. Through the use of outsourcing. You know, there's something like over 50 uh, different employment instruments in Qantas alone. These kind of systemic uh, policy positions where if you're a millennial or Gen Y uh, and you've gone off and you've gotten educated and and you can't get a full-time job or you're working essentially full-time but every time there's school holidays, 
you don't get paid for those two weeks. You don't get paid holidays. You don't get paid breaks. By the way, if you're in any of these situations, you should be absolutely a member of your union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, to join your union because we know union members do have better job security. They do get better wages. But you can see why as you get older, if you're in your 30s or your 40s and you're still working casually and there is no visible pathway to permanency, how that doesn't lend itself to wanting to support that system. It lends itself to wanting to change that system. And I want to add another factor to this because I don't think this is discussed enough, is that the millennial generations have grown up with the science of climate change. Yeah. Like they know that it is real and they know it is real because they consume news, whether they consume it on TikTok or TV or wherever else, the physical material reality of environmental impacts are all around us. We live in a much more globalised, interconnected, communicating world than we ever have. What happens in Pakistan, like with those absolutely horrific floods, kill thousands, displaced millions, is not beyond the realm of imagination for someone who lives in Australia or America or anywhere else, especially not when we're seeing the crazy environmental effects that are going on in the United States with those mad snowstorms that are killing mm. people in, in New York, all over the place, collapse the power grid in, in Texas. We have floods in South Australia at the moment. And let's just put this in the context of your Australian dream as a, a young aspirational, that you might be the traditional um, big L Liberal Party voter, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps with a small inheritance from my parents. Um, you know, I yeah. did it all myself with my expensive private school education and, uh, you know, like preparing my way into a sandstone university. You know, I've got my job for multinational corporation and I'm working hard to build, you know, to enhance the assets I will inherit and develop. Yeah. Those assets mean nothing in the context of climate change. If you're a millennial and you're on that track of of wealth accumulation and looking at the property market and real estate investing and the, those kind of yeah. traditional economically conservative things to do, there's this threat to your wealth that comes from unpredictable climate behaviour, floods, you know, uh, floods, fire, soil fire, erosion, soil erosion, like coastal erosion. Yeah, the the mosquito plagues, like all yeah. of these things, they're actually impacting real estate markets yeah. throughout the oh, world. Oh, and and not just real estate, but all sorts of tangible assets. And and we see we see increasingly um, in the investor community and superannuation taking the threat of. Uh, climate change seriously and demanding companies take a view about how they're going to mitigate climate risks, not just as a emitter, but within their activities and their and their holdings. So absolutely, you can see how millennials um, who are in that kind of um, that uh, socioeconomic demographic of asset accumulation would also go. I want a political party that's going to protect my assets, that's going to actually take this seriously. And we've talked before, you and I, about how, you know, the Liberals miss the opportunity of making their existential threat shift from communism to climate change. And now they're kind of floundering in this what's the point of the Liberal Party, you know, that, that they, they still haven't fully embraced that the existential threat to our way of life is climate change. That's actually the existential threat. Uh, it needs to be addressed. It can be addressed. Uh, but they've given up that space almost entirely, and Labor's really the only party of government that's doing anything about it. They've given it up so much so that, as you say, the Teals have been able to step in and go, well, we actually do think that's an existential threat. We're willing to work with whoever's prepared to deal with it, and we'll represent all these other smaller liberal, uh, socially conservative values that that you believe here in northern Sydney or, uh, you know, Turak or wherever it might be. Well, this is the thing with Dutton, and this is the, the problem that they have. 
I mean, the person, the leader who could have negotiated this for the Liberal Party was Turnbull. Yeah. Absolutely. He inhabited that space. He had clout. He had all the, you know, affectations of attainment that aspirational people aspire to. And the party hated him. Like the this right-wing rump who, you know, reject the science of climate change, absolutely wedded to the old ways, did everything they could to erode his leadership and they rolled him. It should be noted as well that the... The LNP, which is the Liberal brand in Queensland, their numbers are tanking federally as well. So even this idea that Peter Dutton, being from Queensland, this, the one state where, uh, except for Tasmania, the one mainland state uh, where the Liberals do have a majority of federal seats, this idea that he would be able to lead them back is just a total furphy. It's a fantasy because he's not speaking to the electorate. They need to win in order to remotely recapture the centre. You cannot be a government in this country unless you speak to the centre. That is how our system is designed to work. The Australian system is about preventing minorities or or particular interests from dominating over the rest of us. It's one of the reasons why we have universal enfranchisement, which is also known as compulsory voting. So everybody gets a state and the government cannot be the government unless they can speak to and be elected by a comprehensive majority of Australians. And Dutton is just an extraordinary pick for a party that's already in retreat, that has lost the most centrist electorates and members that it had. And and this is the thing, like I want to put this into a broader context about this problem for the Conservatives Mm. worldwide, where they have ceded the ground on climate action. They've ceded it. They've given it up. They pretended it wasn't happening for so long that now material reality is biting. They've drifted from it. What they're focusing on, and this is relevant to the other discussions that we're having today, is on cultural issues. So they've gone from the great existential threat to us is communism Right to to abandoning the idea of the environment, which is an existential threat to us, to the existential threat to our way of life is Ben. Can you tell? Rainbow families, drag queens, <laughs> and I mean this is the stuff that's going on in the United States at the moment, where you have Ron DeSantis, who's being talked about as a future president, a presidential candidate yeah. uh, for the Republican Party, who has like threatened jail terms for parents who bring their children to drag shows, like. And they, and you have Proud Boys and right wing militia trying to shut down Drag Queen Story Hour and things like that. It is the most extraordinary, it is the most ridiculous villain you could possibly pick. And yet, while the Liberal Party in Australia keeps leaning into these cultural issues, like the just absolutely unhinged persecution of trans children that seemed to be their, you know, existential fight in the last election and Scott Morrison backing in the lunatics from Tasmania and Catherine Deves, the veiled liberal candidate for Warringah. That's where they're focusing on. You find me a millennial who feels that they're genuinely under threat by Courtney Act. Like... (laughs) Well, it's it's amazing really and and it... It, it goes to show how fixated they've been in controlling power, right? So they they see these uh, they see these issues, these social issues, as as existential threats to them. I think that's actually what it is. Like, I th- it, it's a really it's a really narrow segment of the community that feels under threat by unisex bathrooms, right? <laughs> Like it's a really, it's a and it, oh no, not unisex bathrooms. You know, it's like there's one in every home. Oh my god, um, <laughs> you know. But it is a really, it's a really telling thing for them to fixate on and focus on. Uh, and and really, then one of the things I want to get to today to talk about is that they have used their decade, they used their decade in power in office to really put their stamp on institutions and to control institutions and that these narratives uh, where they try and somehow or another make which bathroom you use a threat to your democratic right to exist uh, is is really just a manifestation of trying to 
controlled debate and and the narrative that we have in this country so that we don't fixate on some of these big issues around job security, around housing affordability, around who controls our media platforms and and who does get a say and who doesn't get a say, uh, and actually trying to, it's almost like distraction politics. They've gone from communism being such a massive existential threat to distraction politics in the hope that they muddy the waters enough that we don't notice that they've taken over the AAT, which, for example, Mark Dreyfus- That's has, Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Which, which millions of Australians rely on for review of government department decisions, which was stacked with 70% plus of appointments made under the Liberal government in the last 10 years were- party political people, not just have an ideological view, but party political people. You know, as one person put it, uh, I think Elbow might have said it, uh, all you needed to be was the former vice president of the Liberal Party branch uh, up in far north Queensland and you were pretty much guaranteed a part-time position on the AAT. I just want to remind everybody that the Liberal Party believes socialism is wrong, that the state should be smaller, that people (laughs) should make their own way and take individual responsibility. Unless you are, of course, the vice president of the Manildra branch of the Liberal Party, in which case you can exist off the government teat for life. But, but this is this is the point, right? Like they've done this, they did this not just with the AAT, which Mark Dreyfus and, and Albanese uh, have abolished and will reform and and approach with a more appropriate uh, skill set. But they've done this right across the board. And there was a story today uh, again about ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media uh, Authority, which does have a regulatory oversight role in our telecommunications and television uh systems, talking about the Four Corners piece, which was critical of Fox News and its role in the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Okay, so this is a Four Corners article that was helmed by Sarah Ferguson, absolutely beyond question one of the greatest journalists Australia has ever produced, and it was an investigation into the influence that Fox News, owned by Rupert Murdoch, had over the January 6th protests that culminated in the riot, the deaths of several people, and an actual violent assault on the institutions of American democracy, literally tried to overthrow the newly elected Biden administration. Right. That's a biggie. That's a biggie. And, and you know, there are people who participated in that who are receiving 20-year sentences for sedition. Now, the News Corp, uh, people complained to ACMA about the piece. And ACMA found that on a couple of relatively small issues, they shouldn't have tried to doorstop someone. Janine Pirro, known as Judge Jeannie, who is absolutely worth watching if you love satire, um, but who will make you quake in your boots when you realise that it's not satire, she's a real person. She is a Trumpist uh, who has a slot on Fox and is just an unapologetic authoritarian. And so ACMA wrote to the ABC being critical of the piece uh, and I think it's worth thinking about why they may have done this <laughs> because uh, people, including the former uh, former uh, presenter of Media Watch today, has written saying ACMA has undermined our national broadcaster with this letter. Uh, of course, the ABC uh, Sarah Ferguson herself has said um, Ackerman's letter is uh, is an outrage to it journalism. Is, it is an outrage it, to journalism. It fails to understand how journalism works. Uh, and so the question we always talk about here, Van, is why do these things happen, right? Because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like suddenly one day somebody at ACMA wakes up and goes, oh, I'm going to undermine the national broadcasters today. You've got to look at who's on the board. You've got to look at who's in control of these things. Give us some names, Benny. Well, I'm not going to name names. What I'm going to say is that the deputy chair of ACMA, who I won't name, but she is she, the deputy chair of ACMA is a former advisor to Joe Hockey. Oh, Joe Hockey, the former Liberal Party treasurer of this country. That's Joe Hockey. Former ambassador to the United States. Former ambassador to the United States, Joe Hockey. Apparently has very expensive childcare arrangements. Indeed. Uh 
There's also uh, people who have formerly worked for News Corp. No. On the board. There are people, what a coincidence, Ben. There are people who formerly on the board of the ACCC, the body which has approved, consistently approved merger after merger after merger in the media uh, industry. That has consolidated the power of News Corp? Absolutely has. Wow, that's also a big coincidence. Uh, and, of course. I guess they're really great experts on media. And this is the thing. These are people who bring an ideological lens. Some of them are clear political appointees, right? Uh, some of them bring an ideological lens. There's one of the uh, one of the people on the board is a partner at the corporate lawyer Freehills, uh, and participated. Not exactly a friend of the union movement, Freehills. No, and participated and assisted the Papua New Guinean government in the privatisation of its telecommunications. Privatisation that means selling government assets owned by the people to corporations. So these are. These are the sorts of people who were appointed, right? And they're still there. And they're still there. Despite the change of government. Despite the change of government. Now, right. This, the reason I bring this up is because when I elect a government, I want change. I, I, I want the people I elect to bring about the kind of policies that they have put forward. And the thing about ACMA is that it represents the same problem as the AAT. I've got no problem with people being appointed who come from an ideological lens of the government. Because the people have elected the government, because we have a democratic majoritarian system, and if the majority of Australians vote for lizards, unfortunately, that means those of us who voted against lizards have to deal with lizard policy. That is the contract of a democracy. And it's absolutely vital, particularly as we see the coalition's numbers collapsing, that across government institutions, whether it's the boards, whether it's the executives, I mean, look at the NDIS. Look at what Bill Shorten has done there. Bill Shorten has come in and gone, you know what? The NDIS should be chaired by someone who has disability, someone who has an experience of the NDIS. Kurt Fernley, fantastic Fantastic appointment. appointment. Has brought in- Everybody loves Kurt Fernley. Has brought in new executives to reform the NDIS, has worked with the sector, with the providers, with people with disability to actually make improvements. And the backlog is being cleared up. That's the kind of change I'd like to see right across government. Well, that's what Australians voted for. I mean, Australians had the opportunity to vote for more of the same and the consistent ideological lens of the Liberal Party in the 2022 election, and they did not. They voted for something different. And that the election campaign was very clear that integrity and transparency were very popular issues with Australians, hence not only the vote for the Labor Party, but also for the teals. Absolutely. And it's important that we understand that government, as you've said to me, is not just the cabinet and the majority in the lower house. Government is all the various mechanisms. It's government corporations, it's statutory authorities, it's departments, it's a whole range of things that people have to interact with. And we need to understand how those things work and who controls them. Well, this is the thing. Like, it, 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 yeah, government is not just the prime minister and the ministers and the the seat holders in the lower house who support them and give them a majority so they can mm. promote legislation. It's not just ministers directing departments. It is departmental appointments and it is this vast infrastructure of committees and advisory boards and you know executive positions. the The majority of Australians will never. Touch well. I mean, I don't think any Australian, even the prime minister, touches every single yeah. statutory body, every single decision making process. Like all of these valves and mechanisms are the prerogative of the government to appoint, so their policy agenda can be carried through all of the organs of government. And let's be really clear: the 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 Liberals under three prime ministers over the course of a decade understood this really well, and they made a huge number of appointments, so much so that in the case of the AAT, the public went, hang on, this is out of control. Now, there's so many organisations, boards, committees, um, uh, statutory authorities. The Australia Council, uh, Australia Post, the Office of Film and Literature Classification. Office bearers that just 
people won't even be aware of. And that's fine. People don't need to be aware of all of them. But government needs to be aware that people want these things to reflect the policy of the government of the day because that's the government we've elected. Now, there are people, Van, there are vested interests. And I'm not suggesting that any members of the board of ACMA or any members of any board in particular are doing the wrong thing or are not doing what they should be doing. What I am saying is that there are some people, particularly in the Murdoch press, who want us to believe that somehow or another, these appointees and these appointments are all apolitical. And they do this by creating what I call the counter-negative. They attack the appointments of people like Kevin Rudd to the position of ambassador to the United States. They say Kevin Rudd's a political appointment. He shouldn't be appointed. He should have to pay back money. All these things they say. Now, Kevin Rudd's a former prime minister, former foreign affairs minister. He's a career diplomat who speaks several languages and is a noted policy expert on China. All things are fairly handy in the dialogue between the United States and Australia. And has worked extensively in the United States at the Kennedy School for Government. So totally qualified, right? Overqualified. In fact, he is the most qualified ambassador to the United States we've ever had. And he and he does have a set of ideological values and policy positions that, broadly speaking, align with the government of the day. So he is well qualified and appropriate to be ambassador to the United States. And I'd like to point out who were his two predecessors, Ben? Joe Hockey and Arthur Sinodinas. Yes, Joe Hockey, the former Liberal Treasurer, I believe. We were discussing him just momentarily ago. Joe Hockey. Mm. These are these are not an expert on China. No. No. And not a career diplomat. No. But no. my point, Van, is that these people should have, they should have ideological alignment to the government of the day. What the Murdoch media has done and what other segments of the media have done is tried to suggest that somehow or another there is a magical group of people out there. Who are just experts. Who are apolitical. And they're apolitical they and, have, and just really know what they're doing. They have no they have no ideological framework. Yeah, like a former staffer for Joe Hockey is, you know, a very independent person to sit on the board of ACMA. They just they just they super independent. They bring no history. None. It's all purely pure truth. They have this pure truth. Mm. Now It's that, funny how my pure truth is different from their pure truth. Well, it's the kind of lie that has allowed the RBA to go on its rate rising uh, binge. At the time, we should be increasing taxes on the wealthiest in order to fight inflation. Does everybody know that? That's what we're supposed to be doing to fight inflation is taxing rich corporations and rich individuals. That's actually how you get inflation under control. It's also Spoiler alert! It's what Menzies did as well. It's what, Yes, it is what Menzies did. It is. Funnily enough. But it's, it's also the this notion, this idea that somehow or another these apolitical people can be put in these positions, whether they're ACMA or the RBA or whatever it might be or an ambassadorship, and that they will represent the interests of all Australians free from any kind of ideological framework. Because they're way wise. But what actually happens is that they do have ideological frameworks, they do apply those ideological frameworks, and what happens is that we pretend that somehow or another the neoliberal pro-privatisation, pro-Murdoch framework that they're applying... It's just a default neutral position. Yeah. As opposed to a series of ideological choices that are affected into materiality through the apparatus of authority in any given government. That somehow or another it's apolitical to not want unions to have a seat at the table. That somehow or another, that's just a default neutral. Oh, because unions are inherently political as opposed to lifelong Tories who represent corporate interests, so are just neutral. It's a... It's a... Fiction! It's a fiction! It's total fiction. It's a fiction. It is really, it is really, really interesting because... Like, I understand, and obviously I am a very committed opponent to conservatism and neoliberalism as its economic yeah. iteration, right? These are bad. As far as I'm concerned, I think they are morally negative positions to hold in the world. Um, I think equality is the default setting of humanity and we should be reaching towards it with everything. I am a socialist. I make no apologies for that. And it is very hard when... 
you know, my the Australian community elects a Liberal government or the state community elects a Liberal government or even local council, yeah. you know, dominated by dodos. So, it, and I have to live with that, with the politics and position I hold and until such point as it's an ongoing majority view that the, the morals and values that I hold are shared and become the majority. But the point of democracy, and there's been some really great writing about this in the wake of the just nutcasery going on in America. The point of a democracy is that if your side loses, you can be confident that when your side has a majority again, it will be elected, that these things are cyclic and that the present speaks to the future, speaks to the past. And that's how we bring ourselves as democratic community of diversity and different values and different moral positions into a, a future that has a, a purchase for all of us, yeah. right, and enfranch- enfranchisement for all of us. As painful as it might be for me to spend, for example, nine years sitting through the just ongoing like hate circus of liberal governments, I do so with the confidence that the Australian people will remove them and install a government more in line with my ideological view. And I think then there's a fundamental dishonesty when we pretend that there are that that somehow or another ACMA is apolitical, right? That all the people on it are a- apolitical, or that that somehow or another the RBA's uh, monetarist view is apolitical. These are these are fundamentally political decisions made by fundamentally political bodies, and and I'd have no problem going. Okay, we want to have some conservative voices on that particular board. Um, you know, I would hope not the majority when the, the the general population has said it doesn't want a majority conservative. But you know, I've got no problem with a diversity of political views in an organisation, around a board table, around a management table, whatever it might be. I think that you can get some good decisions that way. But to pretend that these people are somehow apolitical. The ACMA is is just doing its job as a regulator. Grey mandarins. Like, they, it's just dishonest. Beige mandarins. And what it creates, I think what it leads to is the kind of disillusionment and disenfranchisement and, and reactionary politics that happens in places like America where you can pull out individual specific examples and use them to fuel disinformation. You know, what we should be looking at is the structural nature of these things. ACMA, of course, it has a political role. It is a regulator of telecommunications and media. Those are fundamentally political uh, mechanisms in our society. The people who are appointed to that board play a political role. It should be acknowledged. But when those things are not acknowledged, it does things like undermine public confidence in the ABC, which is unacceptable. Well, yeah. and this is the thing: like the the criticism of Sarah Ferguson reads very differently if you accept that the the authority that's making that criticism comes from an ideological worldview which is aligned with that of News Corp. Yeah, right? that and and it's and that's a discussion we need to have. It is fine, it is more than fine, it is birthright of every democratic citizen to criticise the decisions made by authorities, to expose them, to challenge them, to organise popular revolt against them, to praise them. I mean, that happens sometimes. I mean, Popular peaceful revolt. (laughs) Popular peaceful revolt, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a democracy. But, like, these are, that's our democratic right, and we should do that. There's got to be an ongoing process of scrutiny, whether these people are theoretically on your ideological team or not. Correct. The problem is that that ideological element, you know, it's this veneer of neutrality, and it's one of the reasons why, the, the the neoliberal frame has become, I'm going to really show off my university education here, hegemonic. Yeah. So a hegemony is 
an ideological, like, is there a way of inculcating an ideological worldview as if it's normal and natural? That yeah. all these pieces work together to affirm that neoliberalism is just the state of the world, that markets really do just run everything and everybody's hands off because an economy will somehow take care of itself and nobody's really making any decisions. And we saw a really good example this week of Rishi Shunak in the homeless person kitchen, and this really struck you. Yeah. Yeah. So over Christmas, Rishi Sunak who's the new Prime Minister of the UK. Radical neoliberal. Was doing the food kitchen uh, photo op and there was a homeless man uh, who was lined up and uh, Rishi Sunak uh, asked him, oh, are you in business? Because he, he had said, oh, you know, are you, getting, are you getting business working again? And he said, are you in business? And he said, the homeless man said, no, I'm not. Uh but when finance does well, we all do well. And Rishi Sunak said, oh, yes, I agree. That's why, you know, we're trying to do this, that. Would you be interested in working in finance? And the man said, oh, actually, I'm currently homeless, so I'm pretty focused on just trying to find somewhere to sleep. But the level of internalisation that that a, a man who has no idea where he's going to sleep that night believes that when finance does well, we all do well, even though the richest people in the UK continue to be very rich, finance in the UK continues to do very well. Despite and, the fact the economy has contracted by 10% Rishi, in the two years since Brexit. And Rishi Sunak and his family have done well out of finance at the same time as more and more food banks and soup kitchens are opening. Despite all of those uh, conflicting pieces of data, this homeless man believes fundamentally that when finance does well, we all do well. Hegemony, neoliberal hegemony. And, 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 it, and it's corrosive and it's corrosive to democracy uh, because it can perpetuate the, the power of of billionaires and essentially media oligarchs. You know, somebody like Rupert Murdoch has a disproportionate level of control, not just here in Australia, but in the UK. And then we're seeing it play out now in in the US as well. I mean, we talk about ACMA undermining the ABC with its sort of News Corp uh, ideological framework. I mean, Fox News is t- right now, as we speak, undermining the fundamental democracy of the US Congress. Oh, yeah. Fox News is off-paste, man. It is off-paste. But, but tell us, you know, Van, a lot of our listeners won't be familiar. So the midterm elections happen in November. So they have elections for their lower house. Their equivalent of the House of Representatives is, is the Congress. And they have elections every two years, can you imagine? Um, and the they elect a president every four years. So the two-year election that occurs mid that presidential yeah. term is called the midterms. And and this time the Republicans, through a combination of gerrymandering, turnout suppression, the whole range of things, and also the fact that normally in a midterm, whichever party has the presidency gets thumped in the midterms. The Democrats didn't get thumped, but the Republicans have a five-seat majority. They do. They have a five-seat majority. So a majority in the in the Congress in the United States is 218 votes. Around out of 435 total. Right. And in order to elect a speaker, which is sort of their equivalent of a prime minister, but not really. Yeah, like yeah. it's a sort of prime ministerial in terms the, of the, preparing legislation. The, as I say, the speaker gets to determine what gets voted on on the floor of Congress yeah. and gets to determine speaking orders and appoint committee chairs. Uh, that And is third in line in the event that there's some kind of cataclysmic disaster and the president. But they don't have a ministry. They're not on the executive. Their system is different to ours. But the speaker is an extremely powerful role because they determine what legislation is, what bills are going to be voted on by the Congress. cushy committee positions. And, yeah, and and what the policy agenda of the the Congress is going to be. So the the candidate um, who's been the House Minority Leader, which is from when the Democrats had the majority, Speaker was Nancy Pelosi, um, and the Republicans in minority, their minority, their um, minority leader yeah. was Kevin McCarthy. He's a Republican from California, great fan of a blow wave. 
And Kevin McCarthy has distinguished himself by his naked pursuit of the Speaker's chair. It has defined his political career. Every political decision he has made arguably has been made in the service of achieving that leadership position. Infamously, Kevin McCarthy did not stand up to Donald Trump when Donald Trump was president and writing roughshod over the Constitution and the law and very basic provisions of national security and the rest of it. And even only a couple of days after the violent, lethal insurrection at the Capitol that was encouraged by Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy flew to Mar-a-Lago, which is the Trump property in Florida where he now lives like an exiled emperor, and paid homage. Like he went to kiss the ring, basically, of Trump, the king of MAGA. But you say he's the candidate because there is no other candidate, is there? There there is no other candidate for Speaker. But but he has been unable to become Speaker because the Republicans are so divided uh, and, and there is a there is a Murdoch influence yes. in this in this soup of Machiavellian nonsense. Yes. So the Republicans only have a five seat majority in the Congress. Yes. Right. And ordinarily, in in precedent has been that the the leader of the party becomes yes. the the speaker. speaker. So Kevin McCarthy has been very assiduous in making deals with very MAGA pro-Trump style people, like the completely mad Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. and agreeing that they'll get Marjorie Taylor Greene, who he was forced to strip of her committee assignments because she is wackadoo and yeah. was making it, is appearing with anti-Semites and talking about Jewish space lasers and is just not with us. Um, he cut deals with her for her support to become Speaker. But there are the, this morning there were 19 Republicans who voted against McCarthy for the Speakership on the House floor, meaning that he only had 199 votes as opposed to the 218 that he needs to be conferred as Speaker. And that number had there was a second vote on the floor and the number increased to 20 holdouts. So when he had 198 votes and these are not all the democrats are voting against him as yeah. is tradition they're voting for their now uh, minority leader hakeem jeffries who's replaced yeah. nancy pelosi as the leader of the democrats in the congress hakeem jeffries by the way is great and his twitter account is fire and is the first african-american to be a um, party, party leader in in the Congress, and he's he's really very good. And I said that as a huge Nancy Pelosi fan, and um and he got more. Hakeem Jeffries got more votes <laughs> in the vote for Speaker because all two hundred and thirteen of the Democrats in the Congress, all of them from the Squad to the Blue Dog yeah. Republicans, all voted for him. Disciplined, focused, making a point, and the Republicans could not whip enough votes to elect McCarthy. McCarthy's furious and it's all over the shop. Dan Crenshaw, who's a reprehensible Republican slime bag, went on Fox News and Fox was like, why is this happening? And Crenshaw was like, it is so bad, one would presume that this was this was somehow democratic strategy that the democrat that you would have to think your political enemies were behind it to create a disaster of this magnitude. You have people like Lauren Boebert, who's the pro-gun yeah. lunatic from Colorado who um, was saying, oh, yeah, we're going to vote for Jim Jordan, who's congressional representative from Ohio and a reprehensible character implicated in the cover-up of sexual assaults at the university where he used to be a wrestling coach, not a good person. Um, And she was like, well, we're going to, you know, Jim, you may not want the speakership, but we're going to vote for you. At the same time, Jim Jordan was nominating Kevin McCarthy for the speakership. So there's a a rump of never-Kevin Republicans who don't have their own candidate, nobody's agreeing to lead them, who are holding out and making just absolutely just la-la land demands of what they want the speaker to do. They want investigations into Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, they want, you know, all these changes of process. They they want all these, you know, they want money cut off to Ukraine. They want this, they want that. And even though there is no other candidate and McCarthy has moved into the speaker's office, he's moved his furniture, his files and all this stuff in, he can't get elected by his own people. It is 
Amazing. And and Tucker Carlson uh, has gone on Fox News on his own show, obviously, uh, and talked about how if McCarthy wants the speakership, he needs to be more conservative and he needs to put in place uh, a whole range of things which sound very similar to a bunch of things that if I was running News Corp or I was uh, one of the Murdoch scions, the kind of thing that I would want my Republican buddies to do in order to prevent, say, the FBI having an independent investigation into media consolidation and its influence over government. Yes. Yes. Well, this is the thing. So Tucker Carlson, in the midst of all this chaos, went, oh, well, you know, it's very, Kevin McCarthy has a couple of options, you know, the, with the Republican holdouts. He really should launch an investigate a committee that will perpetually investigate the FBI and the CIA and, you know, bring them to account. Because it was, it's the FBI who's been investigating whom? Trump. Yes, haven't they? And the CIA, obviously also involved given the national security leaks, the bits of paper that were, that Trump had at Mar-a-Lago, completely illegal, and in a storage facility, completely illegal. And Trump, of course, was always Murdoch's man. And this is the thing, that they the demands are being made through the puppet of News Corp, Tucker Carlson, the, you know, the lippy marionette, about what Rupert Murdoch wants McCarthy to deliver. Rick Wilson, who's an ex-Republican, who for my sins I think is fantastic, um, he was he just refers to him as Speaker Murdoch. Like, let's be very honest about who's really in charge here. And the legislative agenda for the Republicans is being delivered from Murdoch via Tucker Carlson to Kevin McCarthy through the medium of Fox News. It is sickening. It is absolutely sick what is going on. And it really is. And and, and I think, you know, the reason why I wanted us to talk about these topics today is because it's it's a little bit like what you said. The, president, uh, the present is a reflection of the future, which is a reflection of the past. When I think about what's happening in the US and I think about how deeply entrenched in the uh, political process. I'm not going to call it a democratic process because it's not really democratic in my view, but in the political process, Fox News has become and how Speaker Murdoch has essentially now got a list of demands. I mean, he wants a committee that will control investigations into former presidents, presidential candidates, his own enemies. You can imagine the list of people that the Murdochs have drawn up to chair and be on this committee uh, would all be clearly uh, people who are frequently on Fox News. Uh, And it is disturbing. And it is there but for the grace of compulsory voting and people being actively involved and engaged and caring about who is on the board of ACMA, who is on the RBA, these things that we go, oh, they're boring machinery of government things. These are the things that allow Murdoch so much power. These are the things that allow this kind of chaos to engulf a democracy. And I want to talk about there's a term for it. It's institutional capture. And this is all in the context of what we've been talking about today, like the demographic cliff. The demographic cliff in the United States is dire. White people are going to be the minority in the population for the first time ever. Oh, sorry, yeah. I do apologise. For the first time since colonisation yeah. um, and, and the establishment of the Constitution in the United States of America, they are going to be in the minority. And it's the realisation that the Republican vote is so absolutely tied into white middle-class rural voters, that's who Republicans are, and that community is shrinking in the United States. And the way that the Republicans have dealt with this is not by moving with the times and speaking to the values of the emerging generations of millennials and yeah. you know and the generations around them who have a more progressive worldview. It's by enacting voter suppression and gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is where you redraw electoral districts to suit yourself. I'll give you one example. All right. The state of Alabama, a third of people who live in Alabama are African American, a third. Do you know how many seats um, are under the purview of that community? How many? Well, by head of population, it should be seven. Yeah. One. 
because what the redistricting, where they draw up the electoral boundaries, tends to do in Republican-controlled states is they vastly pack one seat with as many people from a traditionally Democratic voting community as possible so those votes are all concentrated and they can yeah. have that seat. And then the other like geographical community, electoral communities of voters are parceled out. So you have a, a a seat where the Democrat might win with 80% of the vote. Yep. But uh, you've then got four seats where a Republican can win by two or three percentage points. Yeah. Where if it was a fair, sort of a fair fight, if you like, in the system we have here where it's done without that kind of political gerrymandering, um, you might have more like 50-50 or even perhaps a Democratic majority in the state of Alabama. So what this means in the United States, we now have a Congress that where there is a majority of Republicans who don't necessarily represent a majority of voters, but it, within that majority that only represents a minority, a, a minority within that, a super minority, are stopping the election of the Speaker until Rupert Murdoch's demands articulated through Fox News are met. It is... Amazing. It is the complete inversion of how democracy is supposed to function. And yet Tucker Carlson goes on Fox News and says, this is how democracy is supposed to work. Oh, and this is the amazing thing. <laughs> like, I can only watch Fox News in, like, maximum five-minute bursts yeah. because I just get angry, upset, and frightened. And that makes me more susceptible to advertising, which yeah. I don't like. But these little glimpses you get into the extraordinary rhetorical craft where what is happening, if this situation were reversed, if the Democrats had a slim majority in the Congress under a Republican president and couldn't sort out a speaker, Fox News would be running it 24 hours a day. Democrats in disarray, Democrats like discipline. These are the people who want to propose an agenda. This is absolutely outrageous. Oh, my God, this is terrible. Obama once wore a tan suit, etc. And now that the Republicans are all over the shop and this weird hostage, political hostage situation is taking place where a man who prostrated himself before MAGA found out that you can never placate extremists, that's Kevin McCarthy, everybody, and unless and for yeah. us all, you can never placate extremists. Um, that it is. This is now a triumph of democracy, according to Tucker Carlson. And, and the, the chaos is the point. And the, and the lesson here, I think, is a: we have to continue, as we always say, to protect uh, our universal enfranchisement, i.e., compulsory voting, preferential voting, uh, as well. Uh, and, and also we have to be actively involved in our democracy. We have to join our unions. We have to get involved in workplace democracy. We have to get involved in understanding the various mechanisms and machineries of government that exist, that influence, whether it be the ABC uh, and the regulators that impact that, whether it be uh, superannuation and the regulators that impact that, whether it be the NDIS and the regulations uh, and the providers that impact that, whatever it is, however it functions, if if it's going to impact our capacity as a democracy to be represented by people who represent a majoritarian view, they may not be exactly who we want. They may not they may not fulfill our every wish and desire, but they are our preference. And the point is that scrutiny is possible through our own institutions. For, I, and I want to make this point. Another reason to join a trade union, all right? If you're like, whoa, all these government entities, where do I even start? Who's holding them, them accountable? Do you know who's holding them accountable? Trade unions are. Because let's talk about like ACMA or the Office of Film and Literature Classification or the Australia Council, all right, for, just as an yeah. example. The Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance is the trade union for media and arts workers. And it is literally their job representing you as a member of that union who are affected by the decisions of those mm. entities to scrutinise the behaviour of those entities, to make representations to them, to you know speak to the media in support or in criticism of what they're doing. Like these are the mechanisms we have to be part of an enfranchised democratic conversation about what entities and authorities are doing. That is literally one of the functions of the unions that we join and the representatives of those unions who we elect. 
So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W. You can join your union today. We've covered a lot of ground here. The good news is that the demographic cliff makes Dutton's attempts to emulate the U.S. extremely difficult and very, very, very unlikely to succeed. Our systems here are different to those in the U.S., and long may that continue, but there's always a need for us to maintain vigilance and participation to ensure that our democracy represents the view of the majority and the preferences of the majority and allows us all to live our lives. But then there's also some very good news, as I understand it, about a new form of motor vehicle. Uh, Yes. So Bertoni is an Italian supercar manufacturer, and they are fancy, man. Like, they make extremely expensive cars. And I just want to foreground this conversation by saying they've made 33 um, of this particular model of car, the GB110, to commemorate their 110th birthday. They're not even listing a price. So before we all get too excited. This may not um, be good news for everyone. This may not be good. This is not not a great great technology story, if not a great accessibility (laughs) story. But Batoni have meant an Italian supercar. Yep. That's powered by garbage. Fantastic. You feed it plastic. Just like on uh, uh, Back to the Future. Yeah, from the end of the first Back to the Future movie with a DeLorean, time-travelling DeLorean is fueled by garbage. They've literally built a garbage-powered supercar. Uh, We recognise that plastic waste is a major environmental problem. Uh, We have committed to developing technologies that convert polycarbonate materials into renewable and sustainable fuels. This is, I mean... First, we're going to get the garbage-powered car. Then hopefully it'll fly. Then it'll be time travel forever. I think that would be very bad. I think <laughs> making those opportunities available to rip it, Murdoch, would kill us all. I'm just going to show you the picture of said supercar. Wow, it yeah, does look it's pretty good, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You can you can look that up uh, on the Good News Network. Uh, it's it's very slick. It's a very slick looking car. There's nothing garbage looking about that. No, no, there isn't really, is there? So yep, garbage powered cars. They are happening. Although you have to have rather a lot of money to buy well, hopefully, one of the 33. Hopefully, as the technology improves, you know, there was a time where electric vehicles were beyond reach, and now everybody knows that Elon Musk is the worst person in the world <laughs> and wants to buy literally anything apart from a Tesla. So that's going to affect the price point, and I am excited about that. Well, I was going to say, why would you buy a Tesla from a troll when you can buy an EV Chevrolet? I was <laughs> that was not a paid endorsement. That was not that. a paid endorsement. Although Chevrolet, if you'd like to pay us, uh, feel free to contact us on the week on Wednesday at gmail.com. Uh, speaking of contacting us, over the break we've had some great messages, great support. You know, the week on Wednesday has gone from strength to strength over the last two years. We enter 2023 with a record number of people chipping in and and supporting us reaching new audiences because we do we do try and compete with the Murdochs of the world and obviously we do that with far less resources uh, wearing but- my baby sheep is holding <laughs> the dog but we are thanks to you thanks to you who listen at home on the road walking your dog in the workplace sharing our podcast but also those who contribute through our buy me a coffee page that's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday, people chip in a buck a week, people make a $10 uh, contribution a month, they're our Extend the Reach supporters and our cadre chip in $20 a month. We are able to reach audiences that Frankly, I never thought we'd be able to reach Van. No, and the money that you contribute to us, we spend on advertising and tech things and bits and pieces. New microphones and all the rest. And of it. it just makes it makes it a lot easier to be able to keep doing the show. And we're really grateful, really grateful. We were one of the top hundred pods on Great Australian Pods, weren't we? We were one of the top five pods. One of the top five. <laughs> Fantastic. Ben is much better at the chart stuff than I am. By the way, you should buy my book, Q&A on and on, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, uh, which became a bestseller again over Absolutely Christmas, which is do. very exciting. So if you haven't read it, you totally should. Uh, it is the definitive guide to cooker culture. 
and we will and we always like to do a shout out for our cadre we will get back into doing videos now that Van and I are going to be more often in the same place at the same time our cadre will get videos from us through our Buy Me A Coffee page and of course uh, people who make a contribution through our Buy Me A Coffee page also get sent episodes directly to your inbox along with some links of interesting stories uh, around the topics that we've discussed Van can you tell our good people who our cadre are okay our cadre are Karina Baliach NC Campbell only given someone Shane Horsfall Akiv Riburis Kristen Sikluna Gabe Kramer welcome to Australia Comrade Kramer Stephen Aitken Trish Corey Greg Miller Kathy Birch Fiona McNeil at Evergreen Beast Giota at Jed Carney Christine Cole Justin Dando Tamara James Bromwin Punch Drunk Veteran at Jenny Forster 7 Joe Fleming Andrew Pascoe Cassandra Tui Addison Official Ian Hampson no Twitter for me Hannah Honda Sam Harriet Alexandra Sutherland Matt Bush no relation Richard Sands I'm not on Twitter Glenn Robbie Brush Daniel Skyly Phillips Linda Cartwright at Leanne Jingles Donna Chapman I don't have I don't have Twitter my name is Susan Myers at Kerry Nash 20 Billy 3 McCabe Nurse Simon at Cadigal Lauren Ashen Banjo. Hello, Banjo. Matthew Hadley at Naranga Man. John Sharp and Peter Barth. Aaron Rollins. Louise Watson at Red, White and Blue Lou. And our extended reach supporters are Stuart Munn, Marky Mark at Vikim Bid, Adrian Valente, Maritzade, Carriedale 68, Frank Nihus, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph Rachel, Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tridragon, Damien Marley, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John, sorry, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan at Ange Fennel, Anna Uren at Roskanna 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jodie Adon on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K Not, love your work, at Didums, Sharon Kelly, Beckham Lola, hello Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannah, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Back Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Heinen, at Galfest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliana, and Andrew, Ivis Biller, Andrew Bryan, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Key Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum, Basher, Caddy Wood, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. <sighs> You are all legends. Congratulations on helping make the week on Wednesday such a success. It, top 20 regularly uh, for politics, top 40 regularly for news on Apple Podcasts. Remember, if you can't make a contribution, the podcast will always be free to listen to and to download. Uh, we do ask that you share it. Talk about the issues. Engage with people in your workplace. Engage with your family. We know people join their union because they listen to our podcast. They tell us this. In fact, we know that people have spoken to union leaders in airports because they've listened to our podcast, and we couldn't be happier about that. This podcast has always been about getting information to people and hearing from you. So get in touch with us through our social media channels. Tell us good news stories. Tell us about what you're doing in your workplace. Tell us about what you're doing in your community to support democracy and to strengthen the power of working people. Now, I'll be back with this uh, weekend wrap on Sunday. Van and I will be once again doing the week on Wednesday next Wednesday. Don't forget to check out the Adelaide Fringe Festival website where you can book tickets already for our live week on Wednesday live sessions. We're doing it in a yurt. In a yurt. In a yurt for four four Wednesdays in a row. So hopefully this goes well. Buy your tickets. Buy them early. Uh, and until then, love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye.